we were these early adopters of technology and the internet, I figured everyone knew about the internet. And so my aha moment actually was in the summer of 1997, two or three years later, I've been online for some time. I got an internship at Goldman Sachs in New York. You know, and here I was, Grand Central for Global Finance, and no one was online. It was still very old school. And uh, that really was the moment for me, like there's a business opportunity here. You know, I go back and I have a couple of good buddies and I'm like, I think there's something here with this internet thing. We should start a business. When we went back to college, it was easy to get online, but the following summer when we went full-time on the business, it was all on dial-up. And I remember how hard it was and how expensive it was. I think our first bill was like $2,000 because we were in a uh, commercial zone. It was insane. <laughs> I mean, that bill almost put us out of business before we even got going. That was Bill Martin. And as you just heard, $2,000 for dial-up internet access nearly sunk his business before it really got launched. That business was RagingBull.com, one of the first online communities for stock traders and, as you're about to hear, possibly a key contributor to the famous bursting of the dot-com bubble. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. with another episode of Webmasters, the podcast where we talk with the people who helped build the internet and World Wide Web into the global behemoth that we all know, love, and simultaneously loathe. I'm Aaron Dinan, your host. I'm a serial tech entrepreneur. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Duke University. And for whatever reason, I'm fascinated by online businesses. So I like to learn more about them, and I'm assuming you do too, otherwise you wouldn't be listening. Or, you know, you're my mom. Hi, Mom. Anyway, for the rest of you, you're here and you like online businesses, so I want to take a moment to tell you about my sponsor because, well, they specialize in helping online businesses. This podcast was made possible thanks to generous support from Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that specializes in helping people buy and sell profitable internet businesses. Those are the kinds of businesses we often talk about here on Webmasters. Content websites, online communities, e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, and just about any other kind of online work from anywhere business you can imagine. If you're currently running one of those types of companies and thinking about selling it, reach out to the team at Latona's and they can tell you about the process and probably help you get the best price possible because that's what they do. Or if you're interested in buying an already profitable internet business, head on over to the Latona's website where you can search all their listings for businesses you can buy right now. That's latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. So, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by internet businesses is because of the ways in which digital technologies have come into traditional markets and basically just flipped them on their heads. One market where that's certainly happened is, well, the stock market. As Bill Martin, our guest for this episode, explains, the way retail investors researched and traded stocks before the digital age was very different. My interest in the market predated the web. <laughs> I bought my first stock when I was 10 years old, which was in 1987, actually right after the crash. I had a grandfather who was an investor and kind of introduced me to the markets and was always entrepreneurial as a child, always starting businesses and just immediately was struck by the market and being able to look up prices every single day and 
intellectual curiosity of kind of learning about businesses. Back in those days, to get information, I literally would have to drive half an hour to the public library to look at a value line, which was this book that would come out every week. And you could research stocks that had an amazing amount of data, but it was old. In a lot of cases, it was months old. I like the way Bill is focused on the speed at which digital technologies have changed how the world operates. As I've discussed plenty of times on this podcast, and I'll surely talk about it again, lots of technologies have completely transformed the world, but I'm not sure any of them have done it so quickly. And that, of course, is because of the incredible speeds at which digital technologies allow people to exchange information. This, for Bill, is what was so appealing about the early web. I had some friends who were techies, ended up hiring actually a couple of them later on to help build Raging Bull and do some of the initial coding. But they were always running projects early on, connecting computers across town on 2400 baud and, and making games work. And our high school actually rolled out email fairly early on. I remember signing up for American Online early days. I remember Steve Case would send out a letter every time they hit 50 or 100,000 users. And I remember reading those letters. So for me, that was kind of the early exposure. Again, could just immediately see that this was a much better way to get information, to share information. And as someone who was really interested in the stock markets, just ate it up. And back then, what kind of things were you doing online to get information about stocks and the market in general? I was a sophomore or junior in high school. When I learned about message boards, online forums, and various news sources online, you know, early on found a website called Silicon Investor, which was an early message board website. Motley Fool was available early on. And there were early communities of investors coming together and sharing information. Yeah, much like financial Twitter today, but coming together and sharing information. Silicon Investor and Motley Fool were basically known as not only some of the first web-based communities about investing, but in general, some of the first web-based communities, period. And to be clear, that shouldn't really surprise us. If we want to think back in time a bit and try to imagine who would have been the earliest adopters of new web technologies, you know, outside of academia, it would have mostly been people with enough money to afford personal computers and relatively expensive dial-up internet. Not surprisingly, that demographic would surely overlap to some extent with the people interested in stocks and investing. That's exactly the kind of environment Bill grew up in. My grandfather was a self-made man, didn't finish college and made his fortune in the markets. He ran his own business and my father had his own business while I grew up. And then you know, being at the University of Virginia was a fantastic place to be as well. Not only were there some early internet guys that came out of there, most notably the CNET guys, Halsey Minor. They ended up actually investing in Raging Bull later, but there was also just a lot of Wall Street guys. That background of being steeped in the world of the stock market from an early age, combined with Bill's early experiences exploring web-based investment communities, all came together in the quote-unquote aha moment you heard about at the top of the episode. I got an internship at Goldman Sachs in New York, you know, and here I was, Grand Central for global finance, and no one was online. It was still very old school. And uh, that really was the moment for me, like there's a business opportunity here. And so you just, what, started Raging Bull because it seemed like a good idea? Yeah, I think being young and a little naive helps. Now that I'm a grizzled veteran and ran a long short hedge fund and shorted stocks for 15 years, I know all the pitfalls. I know all the things that can go wrong. The idea that we could pool $20,000 of capital and hire a couple of our buddies to code a website and drop out of college and build a business 
any rational person, like that's not a logical decision. <laughs> yeah, being naive is definitely helpful. I feel like lots of people describe entrepreneurs as risk tolerant, but I think it's more like risk ignorant. Well, when you're young, you don't have the burdens of a mortgage and children, and you have a little bit of naive, so you can take risks. And, you know, a lot of it just being in the game. That certainly was the case for Raging Bull, and it's been the case for my other businesses, which I've been fortunate to have some success around. You just got to be in the game, and good things happen. Okay, that's fair. So let's talk about it. How'd you get into the game? How'd you decide to build what you ultimately built? For some reason, the message board piece just always grabbed me and my two co-founders. The social element of bringing people together, kind of that network effect, plus just distributed content. The idea that you could have these experts. And later on, you know, a number of them became very famous and had huge followings, right? And they were not people that were hired by Business Week magazine or were on CNBC. These were just guys who were smart guys and they would go on message boards and share their knowledge. And uh, just thought that was really powerful and spent a lot of time on some of the early Silicon Investor and Motley Fool sites. And I just thought the products could be innovated around and could be done better. For all the upside of a social community, there's also a lot of noise, <laughs> there's a lot of riffraff, there's a lot of trolls, like there's a lot of issues that need to be solved there too. And that's where we really focused our innovation. And what was a successful example of that kind of innovation? We created an ignore button. So you could literally mute someone in a community that you didn't want to listen to. It sounds simple today, although Twitter still struggles with that, right? That was a big part of it. And the other part of it was just how do we bring all this data and all this information online. And so we were one of the very first online sites to introduce real-time stock quotes, which today, when you can trade for free online, doesn't sound like a big deal. Back then, like, how do you get the data from the exchanges? Uh, the exchanges were set up to sell real-time data at a penny a quote to institutional investors. We were literally were delivering millions of quotes a day, right? And so like the business model needed to be reinvented and we needed to figure all these things out technically and financially. That seems like a huge challenge. How'd you solve it? How'd you get real-time stock feeds? I mean, I'd say that's a pretty major contribution to the web. You know, it was all the different data feeds. It was business development. It was technology. There was no such thing as an API back then, right? And so you had to set up custom connections. And uh, we ended up negotiating a deal that made us... <laughs> had to be one of the biggest market data consumers that the exchanges had. We were able to work out some caps and I wouldn't say it was a viable long-term business model, but it was at least a uh, viable kind of loss leader in the short term. Because even having real-time quotes, Yahoo Finance didn't have real-time quotes, like that was a big edge. And then we layered in charts and news and all the other stuff, which is kind of standard commodities. But back then, you know, kind of bringing that together in one place while also having the community component was a real differentiator and it allowed us to grow leaps and bounds. And they definitely grew fast. But of course, it didn't start that way. Bill and his co-founders launched the site during their sophomore year in college when he was just 19 years old. And at first, it wasn't quite obvious to Bill that he'd created something that would go on to become a successful internet company. So even as he built Raging Bull, he was still looking for internships. We actually have Jim Cramer to thank for Raging Bull in kind of an ironic way. He, of course, has become very famous with the CNBC show and, and what have you. Back in the mid-90s, he was running a hedge fund and had launched, uh, at the time, TheStreet.com, which was an early, powerful innovation in financial media. But he was still running his hedge fund. 
After my summer at Goldman, my mentor at Goldman had said to me, next summer you should go work at a hedge fund. He was kind enough to write a few letters of introductions to some folks for me. One of them was Jim Cramer. And so I sent a letter to Jim saying, you got to interview this Bill Martin guy. Like, I think he should spend the summer at your hedge fund. And uh, I called Jim and I say, can I have an interview? And he's like, call me at six o'clock in the morning on Friday. Like, that's his response. So I'm a college kid. So, all right. I, I think I may have just stayed up until six o'clock in the morning. But I call him up. You know, we start talking. And I, you know, I love the market. I really want to work at a hedge fund, learn about a hedge fund. He asked me where I went to school. And I said, the University of Virginia. And he, he said, well, I only hire kids from Ivy Leagues. Sorry. And he hung up the phone on me. And so that was the birth of Raging Bull. If he would have given me a job that summer, I may have uh, gotten an intern for him and maybe worked for thestreet.com. But instead, we kind of doubled down on Raging Bull and, and actually created a little bit of a chip on our shoulder, too, on some level. That doubling down on Raging Bull came in the form of Bill and his co-founders cobbling together $20,000 to work on the project during the summer after their sophomore year of college. They intended to return to school at the end of the summer, but the popularity of the site kept growing and more and more people were noticing. We did have some early offers. A firm called Multex, which was an investment research aggregator, offered us a couple million bucks. And the backer of the globe.com, which was an early you know, high flyer, like they had expressed some interest. It would have been a tremendous amount of money, but it just never really piqued our interest per se. It wasn't enough money to be like, this is it, right? I and mean, we're kind of young guys. We needed to do something, right? <laughs> so we just kind of kept our heads down. Weather all came along and uh, it clicked. Weatherall here is referring to Dave Weatherall, CEO of early internet conglomerate slash holding company slash VC firm CMGI. They were major investors in companies like Lycos, GeoCities, and AltaVista. And Dave famously discovered Raging Bull as he was surfing the web while on vacation. Dave just, you know, he was just a passionate internet user. He would spend a lot of time online. It wasn't about reading business plans for him. He would engage. And I think that's why he had a lot of success with sites like GeoCities. Like he just kind of got it early on where a lot of guys were thinking about them as traditional businesses, right? Raging Bull, he, I think he was following CMGI stock. <laughs> he may have had his own name actually on one of the message boards, which he probably shouldn't have, but he was online following his stock. And I think one thing led to another and he discovered Raging Bull on a vacation and had one of his VCs reach out to us and requested a business plan, which we didn't have a business plan, right? But we pulled an all-nighter. We had a business plan the next day and I got invited to fly up to see him in Andover, which I almost missed the flight. There was bad weather in New Jersey. Went up and we spent a few hours together and just kind of hit it off. It was a pretty easy decision. I bet it was. What was the offer and what was it like once you started working with Dave and CMGI? You know, he came in, made a meaningful investment in us, several million dollars. Uh, we ended up moving up to Andover, Massachusetts, which is where they were based. And he gave us a lot of the infrastructure. And I mean, we were a young group of guys. I wasn't even 21 years old when we did that financing. And being around Weatherall was amazing. He really was one of the early geniuses who saw everything. He had a college marketing business in the early 90s that he ended up building. He saw the potential of the internet and ended up making early investments in Lycos and later GeoCities and a number of other firms, but just kind of saw the network effect of the internet, saw the opportunities way before everyone else. And I was fortunate 
as a young entrepreneur, he kind of took me under his wing. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him and we were a couple floors away. So I would see him regularly and talk about a, just an amazing ride for a couple of years. Like when he funded us in, in the fall of 98, CMGI's market cap was $500 million, which was a lot of money. But in March of 2000, it hit $60 billion, and he was on the cover of Business Week, and yeah, he was one of the most famous guys in the country, right? So just being there for that arc was pretty awesome, too. And why do you think he was so passionate about Raging Bull? What was the business he was seeing? Because at least when he made his initial investment, you wouldn't have been making much money, right? It's all about eyeballs, the classic term of the late 90s. And Dave got the eyeball argument. You know, a lot of his early investments was in ad technology and looking at cookies and targeting. And he had a strong view that if you aggregated these large audiences, your ability to target and create ad-based models was strong. So we did that. With a message board, there were a lot of early challenges. You generate a lot of engagement, a lot of time on site, a lot of impressions. But Back then, people were judging the success of advertising based on click-throughs, and you get terrible click-throughs. So one of our early innovations, which sounds crazy today, is called an innovation, but I think we were one of the very first sites to introduce text-based link ads. We would put at the bottom of every message board and made an interface where people could upload those easily. We did some stuff like that. Later on, we were in the midst of the early stages of the internet bubble in 99 and 2000. Things went really crazy. We just had all the online investors. So the business went from zero in revenues to 10 million in revenues in like an 18-month period. And that was E-Trade and Daytech and Discover and all these guys wanting these online investors and very affluent customers and doing effectively lead gen for them. And I actually built a pretty nice business, but you know, over the long term, not a sustainable one, but it was pretty good at the time. Zero to 10 million in revenue in 18 months? That's it's huge. So you must have had tons of user growth, but it's not just any user growth, right? It's stock market people. So probably lots of pump and dumps and spamming and things like that. I mean, you created an ignore button for a reason, right? How are you dealing with all that malicious traffic? It was hard. I mean, you see today, Facebook and Twitter dealing with these issues in a lot of different ways, right? And in some cases, misinformation where people were posting fake press releases and we'd get a subpoena from the SEC. I still remember the first time I got subpoenaed for the SEC for user data. So there were an assortment of issues that we needed to navigate. We had a team, but we had to be careful that we uh, couldn't monitor and edit every post, right? I mean, it was a free-flowing community and we were growing lightning fast and technology was really hard. Writing the software was hard. It was all from scratch. We also had to deal with the scalability on the hardware side. You didn't have the ability to outsource to a cloud provider. Like we had space at a data center and we were growing, in some cases we were growing like 10% a week and we weren't network ops guys, right? So trying to, not only the amount of capital to buy Sun hardware and all these expensive computers and try to ramp them, but just try to stay ahead of your growth and deal with the inevitable bugs and everything else. Uh, there were a lot of growing pains and that was one of the biggest challenges for our business and I think all the businesses at the time. And you weren't the coder, right? You were what, CEO? Yeah, I was the CEO. There were three of us co-founders. You know, my partner, Rusty, really managed and ran the community. He did a, just a brilliant job at that and was just an amazing guy on kind of user interface. And we actually still work together today. Uh, and then Greg was a little bit more operational focused. So I was CEO for the early days. Once we accepted the venture round, I was CEO for some time. And then we ended up hiring a a real CEO. <laughs> uh, we hired a guy, Steve Colleen, who came out of Fidelity Investments. He ran their online brokerage business. So 
we had some gray hair, in his case, red hair, I guess, but a uh, great guy. Talk about just a juxtaposition of worlds. I mean, we were 15 or 20 literally guys in a bullpen. I mean, it was like a dirty frat house, pizza boxes and crazy work hours and schedules. And, you know, here comes in this guy with his, you know, suit and tie and, but he assimilated great and we got along great. So did you put on the suit or did he take off the tie? <laughs> I did not put on the suit, so. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll let that one slide. But I do have to ask this, which is if you're running one of the biggest online investing communities in 98, 99, 2000, and of course, with hindsight, we know the dot-com boom is coming. So are you seeing anything in that community that would have foretold the big boom? Because it seems like there would have been some sort of overlap. I think when you look at the late 90s, I mean, there were a lot of things driving that bubble. There was real bona fide technology and excitement around that. There was different monetary policy in place and what have you. But I do think one of the underbellies of sites like Raging Bull were that we fed that because at the time, greedy investors, right? Later on, they became fearful investors. But at the time, they were greedy, passionate investors. They could come together and share ideas and pump up ideas and do a lot of things. And stocks would move. I remember stocks would go up 20x, right? It would get popular on a board and people would post it. And so I'm not going to take responsibility for the internet bubble, but I definitely think we fed it. <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of at ground zero for all this stuff. You're running a community that's fostering all the excitement for the tech stocks. And at the same time, you're also one of the young 20-something tech entrepreneurs everyone's getting excited about. What was that like? It was pretty cool. We lived in Boston and we were young and there's a pretty good tech scene in Boston. So it was a fun place to be at the time. You know, we were startup of the year in 99 in Boston. So it was a lot of fun. We did get some kind of interesting media attention doing CNBC. And one of my favorite stories was New York Magazine made us one of their 20 biggest influencers of 99 in the investment business or something. And it was just three summers earlier that I had been at Goldman Sachs. And literally, Abby Joseph Cohen was like the page before us. Abby Joseph Cohen, for those who don't know, was a partner at Goldman Sachs in the 90s and co-chair of their investment policy committee. She was famous for predicting the huge bull market of the 90s and was, at the time, considered one of the most influential people in the financial world. So they called me up and they're like, what the heck happened, right? There was just some funny stuff like that. You know, we enjoyed drinking the Kool-Aid. Any particularly memorable experiences that stand out to you? Um, I remember late 90s, going to a Yankees World Series game with my CEO of Raging Bull. Dave Weatherall and his son were there. Dan Case, who ran Hamburg and Quist, he was Steve Case's brother. He unfortunately passed away years later from cancer. But also there was Michael Armstrong, who ran AT&T. And the reason Raging Bull was there and AT&T was there was H&Q wanted to do the AT&T wireless IPO, and they wanted to do the Raging Bull IPO. And we're sitting there at like game six of the World Series in 99, <laughs> which is totally ridiculous. I mean, we're a company with like $10 million of revenue, right? And AT&T Wireless. But uh, you drink the Kool-Aid while they're serving it. Drink the Kool-Aid while they're serving it. If I ever write a book about the late 90s dot-com boom, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the title. But to be fair, smart people like Bill weren't entirely fooled by what was going on, even if they were enjoying it. We were drinking the Kool-Aid as much as anyone, but I knew enough about finance and the markets to realize that something was funny. <laughs> 
things were a little off kilter. And uh, I remember in uh, like the fall of 99, I went to Dave Weatherall and E-Trade had just approached us trying to buy us in a cash deal. I think it was 80 or $100 million or something. Real money. I'm like, Dave, it's kind of interesting. I can run the numbers. It's a pretty good price. And he was just very insistent that we were a billion dollar company. We we're going to go public and, and he didn't want to sell. Even if you kept doubling the revenues, it was time to be selling. You know, we didn't control the outcome. So by that point, you were no longer the majority stakeholders? CMGI ended up through the two rounds of financing, raising 20 million in mid 99 on top of the original money we raised. Yeah, they controlled it. And so Dave wouldn't let you take the $100 million offer? That seems crazy. Dave ended up coming back to us and saying, all right, I'll let you sell, but it has to be to one of the other companies I can control. At the time, our best bet there was AltaVista, which was uh, another early internet story. They had an S1 on file and they were supposed to go public in Q1 of 2000. And so we thought that was kind of our quickest way to get public. We signed a deal right around Thanksgiving of 1999. We were fortunate to get a little bit of cash in the deal, but it was largely AltaVista stock. I think we nailed the timing. Thanksgiving of 99 was a pretty good spot, but AltaVista ended up not making it out. They were supposed to go public in April of 2000, and they missed the window by like a week or two. We wrote up our high-priced stock, and we wrote it down. So, <laughs> And then, of course, AltaVista had its own obsolescence issues in time with Google. And this seems like a good opportunity to plug our very first episode of Webmasters, episode number one, which was a conversation with Louis Monnier, creator of AltaVista. If you haven't checked it out, be sure to do that. As for Bill, well, you heard what happened. Not a terrible outcome for a 20-something, but, you know, also not the best outcome. Still, Bill takes it all in stride and he recognizes the important lessons he learned from the experience. He also appreciates the uniqueness of the opportunity to have been where he was during that important time in both internet and stock market history. I remember sitting in March of 2000, another dot-com moment, but I was at Dave Weatherall's house and his stock had gone from $500 million market cap to like 60 billion. And he was all upset because on a sum of the parts basis, he thought his company was worth 80 billion when you looked at all the individual holdings. And again, young guy drinking the Kool-Aid, but I just, I knew something was a little off. It was frustrating to kind of ride it down, but I do take away from the experience of the gut instinct that like, now's the time to be a seller. We got that right. So in retrospect, what are your thoughts on taking venture capital money? Are you pro VC, anti VC? I mean, I could articulate both sides. I've seen it work and not work, right? I do think having to write VC, the ecosystem, the brand, the discipline that they can bring to bear is super attractive and worth its weight in gold. But it depends on the type of business you're building. You know, if it is a business that you're racing against the clock and you've got a finite window and having that that can kind of throw a rocket fuel on it, I think is good for an entrepreneur. But I think there's a lot of other businesses where you have more of a defensible niche or a longer term time horizon to build that business where it's not maybe spend a ton of money in the next two years or you're going to miss your window. I think there's a lot of benefits to just organically building the business and, and figuring out how to do that. And to be clear, a site like RagingBull.com was definitely a racing against the clock kind of business. It was a land grab for user attention. They certainly got it. Unfortunately, it was just at a time when the business models hadn't quite caught up with the demand, which of course was the case for a lot of companies at that time in internet history. 
you know, I think we were early in understanding kind of the power of the internet to bring people together and connect them and share information. I think the business model was 10, 15 years too early. <laughs> I've been fortunate. Our single best investment in our hedge fund was actually Facebook and being long that. And I, I think for me, the framework of Facebook was actually having the experience with Raging Bull, seeing GeoCities early on, having experience with some of these online communities. And when Facebook came around, realized pretty early that it was an operating system, just immensely powerful. And part of this is just Zuckerberg is about a, a thousand times smarter than I am, but he, he was able to build a business model around it. And what an incredible business it is. And it's still kind of going. Twitter has done the same. Financial Twitter today is super popular. And it reminds me a lot of the early days of what we were doing, just bringing a community together. One thing the story of Raging Bull is definitely doing is highlighting the power of online communities, even in their earliest days. It was online communities at sites like Raging Bull that helped propel the stock market forward in the late 90s. It was those same communities that helped send it tumbling down in the early 2000s. Now, whether those communities are good things or bad things is, of course, a completely different question. I mean, it's like fire. It's mostly used for good. <laughs> you just got to be careful, right? You can burn your hands too. So the democratization of information and the collapse in trading costs and everything else, I mean, it's a fantastic, awesome thing that's great for the economy and less friction is a good thing. You can build whatever algorithm you want. You can't replace the human emotions of greed and fear and greed and fear still rule the day in markets, right? And so technology is just technology and may make it go faster. <laughs> you know, greed and fear are still there. But it's amazing just to think that it was 25 years ago, I had to drive a half an hour to look up information on a stock and the information was three months old. That's pretty amazing. It certainly is. And hey, you know what else is amazing? This podcast series, right? So now that we've wrapped up this story of Raging Bull, I'm going to encourage you to subscribe to Webmasters on your podcasting app of choice so you're sure to get the next amazing episode as soon as it's released. I'd like to thank Bill Martin for taking the time to share the story of RagingBull.com. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, and I'd like to thank our sponsor, Latonas. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out Latonas.com. And if you're interested in sharing your thoughts, feedback, or ideas about the podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinnan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about startups, entrepreneurship, and internet businesses over on medium.com. Find all of that content there. Just search for my name and hopefully it'll tide you over until we release the next episode of Webmasters, which I promise is coming soon. But for now, time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs>